Good morning. It's like we're racing against the clock. I didn't know my iPad didn't charge all the way, so it's at 15%, so we might get out early just because. No, I'm kidding. I printed them out, so just in case. Um, be a first. Uh, now, we're back this morning, or we're actually in John 12, uh, back this morning in verse 9, if you want to turn there. In your Bibles, we're picking up from last week where we see, saw G, uh, Mary pour out perfume on Jesus, and, and then Judas, his contradicting response to the worth of Christ. And so this week, as John shifts here in the book, this week what the passage reveals, it shows us both how Jesus is mighty, and yet he's weak. Like he is, he's great, and yet gentle. Like this reality, this simultaneous, continuous reality is completely both, that he's Lord, and yet he's lowly, and he's perfectly slow, so in each of these. And so from verses 9 through 19, we're going to see how John multiple times writes in a way to make clear that Jesus has this simultaneous, like, highness, if you will, and lowliness. Um, We're going to unpack how this text appropriately identifies him as the triumphant king. That's what we see here in this text. Yet, as we just read here, Jesus humbled himself and took on flesh. Like, like think about this, he is quite literally humility personified. I mean, like, God himself is humble, right? So he's humility personified as he's come. And then we see he takes our sin, even he took our cross, And so if you will, we're going to start in verse 9 and read to verse 11, and we'll talk about it a bit. It says in verse 9, When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So as we just said, verses 9 through 11, they move us from the scene of Mary pouring out the perfume on Jesus to now the uh, crowds proclaiming that Jesus is their coming king. But these verses, they also do, do more than just that. They're not just like transitionary in nature. They also describe for us who Jesus is. Like, like you have to remember that since Jesus called Lazarus back to life, he almost immediately withdrew, right? Like besides his closest followers, no one saw Jesus and they're seeking to kill him. So he, he withdrew from the public eye. And yet now we see he comes right back in the public presence. And not only that, but he does so by coming to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Like, he could not have picked a place to gather the crowds faster, right? And this is exactly what happens. And and it's by no means an accident. Like, Jesus, he's intentionally doing something here by coming to this place. He is gathering a crowd. And this is because he's actually putting into motion what we're going to see unfold in the next few verses. But before we get there, just as sovereignly as Jesus is accomplishing his will here by doing this, John is also skillfully describing who Jesus is. But like Jesus raised Lazarus to life. No one's done this before, right? They didn't believe it's possible after three days. And as Chad taught two weeks ago, even the majority of the religious leaders built their whole identity of their theology on the impossibility of such an occurrence. Like no one thought this could happen. And yet Jesus, speaking like you would to a sleeping friend, with just a word, raises this dead friend. But just as powerful as Jesus is, we see he's equally humble. But like this, Jesus, he raises someone to life. Like you can't do anything to make yourself greater. Like no one's going to have a greater party trick at your Super Bowl party tonight, right? Like there'll be some me monsters around, like stories start getting told. So, well, actually for me, no one tops this. This is the greatest one. Like no one can one-up this story. And yet he is so good that what is most natural to him is to selflessly share the glory of what he's just done. And this is what Romans 8, verses 17 through 18 tells us. Paul writes, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, 
heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if we indeed share in his sufferings, right, in order that we may also share in his glory. Like we share Christ's glory. And in light of this, verse 11, if, if you look in your Bible there, it's fascinated me all week, right? It says, on account, on, because on account of him, many of the Jews are going away and believing in Jesus. On account of who? Like first, when you first read it, you assume Jesus, right? But then you read closely, like it says Lazarus. It, it, this is about Lazarus. On account of Lazarus, they believe, not Jesus. Like what we see here then is Jesus. He is the one who solely accomplishes every good work in our life. Yet he simultaneously, he positions us to be the ones who display the reality of this goodness. Like, like think of it, in the same way a painter works and works and works and toils on a masterpiece. Then he positions it for all people to see the beauty of the painting. So too Jesus positions us. Like we participate and share in the glory in a way then we could not and should not be able to. Yet because of him, others come to know him through the newness and the beauty that he brings about in our life. And we share in that. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. He says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared for in advance for us to do. In other words, all glory rightly goes to him. And he receives it. He deserves it. But get this this morning. There is not a morsel. There is not a crumb. There is not a remnant left over. There is not an ounce of his goodness or his greatness and the glory that results and comes from both that he does not share with us. That's how good he is, right? This points subtly in these verses to the point that John will make completely clear in the story to come. That our king jointly and perfectly and continuously exists in both his highness and his lowliness. We have for us recorded in the book of Matthew, Jesus tells us in Matthew 11 that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Meaning his ultimate identity when he gets to set the terms of describing himself like the fullness of who he is at the core. Like in first century time, when someone says, this is who I'm at the heart, they were saying, this is what is most true of me, like innate in myself, my core identity. When he sets the terms, he says, I am gentle and I'm lowly. Now think about that. Like what would you imagine would be the way that God would describe himself, describe himself if he had to answer what is most true of himself? You would never think lowly, right? That would never come across your mind that that would be the way that he would pick. That would be the thing he would pick. And the reason is, the reason it's so moving and so shocking is because Jesus, he's also king of kings. I mean, he is Lord of lords. He is worthy of all praise, the name above all names. Alpha, Omega, the image of the invisible God. He is the one to whom every knee will bow, right? And every tongue will confess. The one to whom one day those from every nation and tribe and tongue will gather around the throne room and worship. And right there, this day, around that throne, right now, created angels circle him and whose eternal existence is to fly around singing, holy, holy, holy. He's above all things. And at the heart of him, the, of who he is, is humble. It's lowly. It's amazing, right? Like I, I read this week then, someone describing Jesus from this reality. He said that Jesus is humble, but make no mistake, he is not modest. And now that grabbed my attention. Like, what does that mean, right? Like, what, what are we talking about? Like, well, so I looked up a definition of modesty. Modesty is defined as placing a moderate estimate on one's abilities or worth, or as neither bold nor self-assertive. And Jesus isn't modest then if that's the category. And so I was thinking about this, like, you probably can't tell, or maybe you can tell. Like, I go to Planet Fitness. I don't know if I'm like the poster child of like what that would look like to be average fitness level, um, but I go there. And so I was thinking about some of the people that I encounter, right? Um, people who, some people are humble, but not modest, and some 
are not humble and not modest, right? Like, like some guys, if they wore any lower cut, their belly button would be showing, right? And so it's like, we, we get the fact you're trying to show that you're strong. Like you're not very modest, but you're also not humble. But there's a few who you would never think. And you look in the corner and they're using all the 45s, right? They're coming in like, wow, you are not modest, but you're extremely humble. And I never would have known that you possess that kind of strength. It's like Jesus here, right? He's too good to not display or assert his greatness, right? When it's time to, to demonstrate his strength, he always will because that's who he is. And this doesn't make him lack humility. In fact, it's actually what reveals it. Like, think about this. If we did not know how great God is, how marvelous Jesus is, we would then not be able to appreciate what Jess just read for us in Philippians 2, what tells us about Christ. And I'll read it first again. It says, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, if we didn't know who he was, we wouldn't appreciate that, right? But that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, again, lowly, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in, in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, he shows us his humility by not hiding the full measure of his strength. We couldn't appreciate it unless we knew who he really was. And this is what he demonstrates in raising Lazarus. And it says, many come to believe, these crowds gather. And this is what he receives in having the perfume poured on his feet in chapter 11. And then we're going to see this is what he turns and demonstrates in, in John 13 when he washes his disciples' feet. It's this. It's his greatness, his highness, yet also his humility and lowliness that we see characterize what follows next and what's known as the triumphant entry. And so we're going to pick up and read verses 12 uh, through 13, if you have it with you. Starting in verse 12, um, this is what's known as a triumphant entry might be marked there in your Bibles. John writes, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Okay, before unpacking what's happening here, I think it's actually helpful to know what takes place right before this. Um, this story, the triumphal entry of Jesus, interestingly, it's one of the few stories in the Gospels that's actually recorded in all four. So it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that shows its significance, right? Its level of importance. But also then, because we know it's in those other Gospels, when we go there, we learn not just what happened right before this story, but how what Jesus did or what he encountered in this actually sets this very story up. In particular, if you were to go back to Matthew and Mark, Right before this story, you'll see, um, I believe it's 10 in Matthew, I might be wrong, but it's before the triumphal entry in both stories, what we encounter, Jesus encounters two blind men who cry out and say, son of David, have mercy on us, right? They're asking to be healed, but also asking for mercy. Now, when they say, son of David, have mercy on us, why do they use that title? I mean, his dad is Joseph. Why are they calling out to know? Because this is his messianic title. I mean, they're, they're ascribing to him his rightful kingliness. They're declaring who he really is. They know he's the anointed one who will come as the true king. And right before this story in the triumphal entry, for the first time in Jesus' ministry, he allows for this title to be said out loud. He doesn't say, no, 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 no. He doesn't say, remember before we've read, hey, don't go tell yet, or don't promote this, don't proclaim this yet. It's not time yet. Every other time Jesus says, not yet, or keep it to yourself for now. 
right? But this time, he doesn't just say not yet, but even more significant, this time, he doesn't just allow it. Rather, he identifies himself as it. Isn't that amazing? This means right before the cha- this chapter where Jesus comes in, this triumphal entry, for the first time, he openly, meaning then publicly, declares that he is the king. Okay, you might be thinking, like, why does that matter? Like, that's good, but why does that matter? Well, how does this cause the scene that follows? Well, because of this statement, this would have shook the whole city. Like, in a moment, in a moment, tremors would have begun to spread as soon as Jesus publicly recognizes and announces this. And this is because for thousands of years, people have been waiting for this. And now thousands are beginning to wonder, is this really who Jesus is? Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? But even more, this would have created a chaos and a, or, and a crisis-level response that was needed because Jesus, not only did he say this and admit this coming into Jerusalem, but he does so at the beginning of Passover week, right? At, we just saw like six days before Passover. Now it's the Sunday before Passover as he's coming in. So it creates a chaos and a crisis-level response. Why so? Well, the first reason is if Jesus is claiming to be king, and he is, that's what Matthew and Mark record for us. If he's claiming to be king, then there are only two options. There's one of two options that follows such a claim. He either has to come into the city and triumph over those in power. Like he has to take the throne. When you claim to be king, you either have to march in and take the throne or he'll be crushed by those in the position of power and authority. That's the only two options, right? But he can't just walk around, and especially not into Jerusalem, claiming to be king. And especially not with the amount of people testifying of his power to raise the dead to life. I mean, the leaders, they're already plotting to kill him because of this demonstrated power that he possesses. And so when Jesus says this, the disciples hear this and they, they're answering, yes, we've been waiting for this, it's time, right? Like immediately the heat, it turns up, right? It, it, it's, they, they realize they're moving from over two years of ministry to now, if you will, like, it's like the two-minute drill. I mean, they're starting the two-minute offense right here thinking, we're, we're marching in and we're going, we're taking the throne. It's go time because once Jesus acknowledges this, it's literally do or die. And even more amazing, like what they're going to find out, it's both, right? That's what he's really going to do. So that's the first reason. Like when he, when he says this, it causes something that happens to follow. But the second reason this would cause such a scene, um, cause such a commotion, is because, again, he's doing this at the beginning of Passover week. So Jerusalem around the first century, it was normally about 50,000 people. But during Passover, it, it would grow and swell to about 120,000 people. So over double in size. They couldn't fit everyone in the city. They're strung out on the hills. This is where they're at as he's coming into the city. And it's this scene and to this swell of crowds that we see in the other gospel accounts that again, Jesus not only states that he's king and sparks the crowd already following him, but we also see in the other gospels, we also see him send his disciples ahead to tell this much larger crowd that he's coming. Meaning then, get this, not only did Jesus order Passover to be observed a thousand years prior to this, but now he's actually using this day to lead to the f- fulfillment of it. Like, isn't that amazing? Like, he, he put this in place and now he's using the very day and the people coming in to do this. So all of this leads to this overwhelming scene of celebration. Yet we also know many of this same crowd cheering, crown him at the beginning of the week, will end with crying out, crucify him, right? So one of the first things we need to see is Jesus as he approaches what will be the triumphal entry, he openly declares, yes, I'm the Messiah. I am the king. Jesus is saying, this is who I am and the throne. It's for me. 
And again, this is no more prideful than me just saying, these are my shoes, right? Like, I, these are the shoes I own. This is just an objective truth. But as he does this, and as he declares of himself, there's a triumphal entry welcoming him into the city, greeting him as coming king. So this is what takes place. And it leads to this third thing we need to know to really understand what's happening here. This triumphal entry, this specific particular scene, points to the kind of king Jesus is and who's going to do. Like, it's really important to see this isn't just something happening alongside the triumphal entry, but it's necessary to actually understand who Jesus is and what he's coming to do into Jerusalem. And they're coinciding for a reason. He planned it for a reason. It is really necessary, and it's helpful to understand what's actually happening here. That this triumphal entry, that in particular, these were actually really common. Like, triumphal entries, like, these weren't rare. I think sometimes we read this and think, this is amazing, because look what's happening here. Like, this never happened before. It's actually the opposite. These happened all the time. These were extremely common. Um, It's a rare thing, not a rare thing in of itself. Like, when John says in verse 14 that they went out to meet him, this was a common expression used for cities meeting their triumphant returning king. That said, while this was common, this practice of a triumphal entry in cities, um, the way this is happening here, it never took place like this. So the way it's unfolding here is extremely rare. Like when this happened in a city, this type of celebration and this parade, it was always used for kings returning from having defeated an enemy, like a welcoming return for a victorious king. But what we know, Jesus, he's not returning from any triumph here, is he? I mean, he hasn't triumphed here. He isn't on his way back from conquering. He hasn't killed anyone. He hasn't just come back from battle. This then is a very different kind of, of triumphal entry. I was thinking about this. I thought back contrasting two different kinds of triumphal entries. Uh, So when I moved to Harrisburg in 2000, so one of our M's, one of our workers, the O's, like M, right? We talked about him at Journey PM. My relationship there started way before even First Baptist or a partnership with the Journey. But actually, when I moved in second grade, moved to the greatest football team to ever play in the state of Illinois. Um, I remember it, right? I'm still convinced the greatest football team, like the glory days of the straight T, right? Quarterback under center, two tight ends, three, three running backs in the backfield, three yards, cloud of dust, 14 and 0, go dogs, right? I mean, I picture it, right? To this day, I remember the glory of those bulldogs, the whole season being on the sideline, in the locker room, right? Winning, seeing the trophy hoisted. But most of all, like I remember the ride back on the bus into the city, Right? After capping off an undefeated season with the celebration of a championship, I remember seeing the fire trucks, hundreds of cars strung out the whole city there, cars honking, people waving, people clapping. Like, to come into that after winning, like, it felt kind of like this, right? A triumphal entry. I still remember it. But then, uh, I remember that. And likewise, nothing makes you feel more like a loser than a triumphal entry after getting beat. Because then I remember in high school, um, we had a great team, baseball, not football, but we were 40-0. Lost the state championship game to a guy with three great pitches and one really good day. And that was it, right? And, and then the parents or the community or someone, though, thought we should still do something for those boys. You know what we ought to do? We ought to do like one of those parades again. We'll line them up, the fire trucks, the people. Not the same, right? Like the triumphal entry back into town after you lost. That's the last thing you want. If there's no triumph. We're losers, right? You're just reminding that we're losers, Nothing more humiliating than from defeat to enter a triumphal entry. We lost. That is, except for this scene and what Jesus is choosing to do. Because though Jesus is not moving from defeat, make no mistake, he's definitely moving towards it. 
get this, Jesus, he uses this entry of exaltation to actually enter utter humiliation. Think about it. This is what makes the story so beautiful. Here, Jesus, he's coming as a king and as a triumphant king, but not from triumph for it. Like here in John 12, he's moving to triumph, right? But it's ahead, not from behind. What we know from having the whole book that this triumph, it's over sin and death. Yet he'll bring this not by killing his enemies, but by being killed by them and for them. Like what we have here I read is a kingly coronation, but by way of a cross. He is on his way to die. He's marching in the city in this scene to his death. Like lesser kings always had these parades after they used death to defeat their enemies. But here marches our king to defeat death and to save his enemies by being killed by them. Every other king, get this, every other king won their kingdom by putting their enemies to death. But this king is coming to be put to death by his enemies in order to win them into his kingdom. And it's this reality that there is no exaltation too high Yet also in Jesus, there was no condescending for him too low, though it makes unfolds next so amazing. Because what we see happening here, right? The people, they rightly praise him and they recognize him for who he is and what they need. But the problem in it is they fall short in realizing just how great he is and how great their need is and therefore what he's really going to come and do. Like we see this in verse 13, as they hail him with their palm branches, right? In verse 13. Now, the branches that these crowd use for cheering, they're highly significant, these waving of palm branches, because it reveals the heart of what they're cheering for. It's not like they just, hey, let's find something to wave for Jesus. No, palm branches meant something. In fact, they symbolize Jewish nationalism. What this means then is their celebration of Jesus, it wasn't neutral. As they're cheering for him, it wasn't just about him in a neutral way, but rather it symbolized their deep and long-awaited national hopes. And it's the same with their cry, right? Their cry of Hosanna, which is true. It's who he is. It means save us now. But when you couple that with their next cry, right? Blessed is the king of who? Israel. Therefore, the crowd's intent was to meet their great national liberator, right? Their next military leader. In other words, the king who they want Jesus to be. But that wasn't why Jesus came. Like he was coming as king, but not as the king they were calling him to be. Like we see here. Jesus, he is king over everything. But what this means then is kingship in our life isn't just determined by who we shout for, right? But ultimately who we submit to. Like they were declaring Jesus as king, but more honestly as the king they wanted him to be. But Jesus wasn't coming into the city to be the king they're cheering him as, right? This should then serve as a reminder for us that Jesus will not be placed on the throne we decide him to be king of. Like Jesus will not be made into the king that you or I decide that he need to be or should be. He is greater than that. He's much greater than that. And amazingly, without even knowing their palm branches point to this. Like, do you know what the palms are all about here? And they're waving too? It's more than even their hopes. It's beyond what they even understand. Like I read this week and it's amazing. These palm branches not only signify something in their day of their national hopes, but they actually point back to two Old Testament passages, two messianic promises that are coming of of Jesus. It's Psalm 96 and Isaiah 55. So I'm just going to read them to you. Psalm 96, this is about the coming king. This is about Jesus. It's a prophecy about him. It says, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills, fills it. 
Let the field exult and everything in it. This is the part. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Then there's Isaiah 55, 12. It says, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And right here, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Like we're told here in these passages, first off, we're told that when Jesus comes back, when he comes back again, right, the second coming, he is coming back here forever. He's bringing heaven to earth. And all of the world, this is what it's describing here, all of the world will burst into what it should be. Like, not unlike Jesus' body went from being bloody and broken in a moment, resurrected and glorified, so too will all creation and ourselves, right? If we trust in Jesus, that will be our experience. It's pointing to this. It's what these passages point to. This means then, as, as the four Gospels record the crowds waving these palms, they actually allude back to these Old Testament promises that points not just to their limited desire of a national liberator, but to a king coming into a city without even knowing it, right? To a king that's coming in, not just to free them then and there for a temporary amount of time, for temporary liberation, but one who will come and forever make all creation new, to set it free forever. They don't even grasp then how great the person is that they cheer for. It's so much beyond what they understand. But here's what's so amazing. Like right after John pushes us back to these Old Testament texts to see the glory of Jesus foreshadowed in this story, he then immediately also highlights Jesus' humble fulfillment of another messianic prophecy. Like he, he couples these together intentionally. Again, to see how high, yet how low, how marvelous, but yet how meek. It's from Zephaniah 9, it's what he points us back to, to see not just his greatness, but then quite literally we see his gentleness. And so if you will, uh, read verses 14 and 15. If you have your Bibles, we'll read these two verses and we'll see how, this, how John does this. Verse 14, it says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Okay, so this verse comes from Zephaniah 9 as Jesus fulfills another kingly prophecy. I mean, he fulfills all of them. There's over 300 that Jesus fulfilled in his life of messianic prophecies, and this is one. And in this, Matthew actually expands on this even more, and he quotes the Old Testament, and he's, he says of this scene, he says, look, he says, behold, look, your king comes to you gentle, right? Not just great, and he is, he comes to you gentle. And I love that, because we don't have to be an expert in ancient history to see how riding on a donkey, right, is clearly a gentle approach, right? That there is nothing intimidating about coming onto scene on a donkey, like, it's anticlimactic, right? Like, it wasn't like this was some hidden, like, meaning. Like, no, like, it's not a horse. It's a donkey. Like, this is, this is much more less than what they thought. And I was thinking, it's like the difference between, like, a motorcycle and a scooter, right? Like, if all your buddies were in a motorcycle group and you bought a, a scooter, right? Like, not quite the same, right? Like, Jordan tells a great story of, of a former coworker who used to ride a scooter. And not only that, but he'd always ask Jordan to climb on the back, right, to go get lunch. And Jordan's like, no, like, it's bad enough. But imagine me, like, it's Jordan so tall, like, enfolding you on this thing, riding around. We, we can't do that, right? We can't show our faces around here if we do that. What kind of man rides on the back of another man's scooter, right? And I typed that and, like, literally humility. Like, then I saw my face in my laptop as I'm typing, and I'm like, 
maybe someone really meek like me. Like, so I'm like, I better be careful because I think I'm more meek than motorcycle. But anyway, um, I kid about that because the Bible, it's asking, what kind of king comes on a donkey? It's wanting you to ask that question, right? Because kings don't do this. What kind of king or general who is going to conquer? And remember, when Jesus announces his messiahship, that's what he's claiming to do, to go in and conquer, to take the throne. What king goes in to do that on a donkey? And the answer is none, right? Like, do you know what happens to those who claim this and they ride in to triumph on a donkey? Like, to go into battle on a donkey? What happens? They get killed. Like, they're slaughtered, right? Every time. And this is why Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, right? Riding in gentle, riding in defenseless, riding in vulnerable, riding not on a king's horse, but a servant's donkey. Like, why is he doing this? Why, why, why this? Well, because in, he's showing us here, or because in showing us this, he's actually saying something. Like, I love this this week. Tim Keller, he, he said, it's because this act is our demonstration of the gospel in this text. He says, when we read the Bible, what we come to see is that sin is actually the servants putting themselves in the place of the king, right? That, that's what sin ultimately is. It's putting ourselves in the place of the king. That's what sin is. And therefore here in this text, what Jesus is making clear in this demonstration is that salvation then is Jesus putting himself in the place of the servant. Like how good is that, right? Like donkeys, they were for servants. They weren't for kings. Yet look at the position that this king assumes of, his, of himself. Ours, our position, right? Remember we said last week, the gospel in four words, Jesus in my place. Like this is what the Bible teaches that sin is putting ourselves in the position, in the place of God, and yet salvation then is Jesus putting himself in our place. Like all of our sin, it can be boiled down to this, putting ourselves in the place of the king. Like all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter three, what, what did the serpent hiss? What did he say? Did God really say? That's what he hissed, right? The lie, the deception. And he wasn't questioning if God really said, right? Rather, it was questioning if God was really good and if he really should be able to dictate to Adam and Eve what they could or should do. It was questioning the authority on life, his kingship, right? His goodness, his glory. And in wrongfully answering that question with disobedience, it shifted our rightful belonging in unique fellowship and harmony with God. When we put ourselves at the center, like this unnatural move, sin, then it naturally brought about our only, the only possible implication, which is utter implosion in our lives, as a result of sin. Like what I mean by that, like our wrongful ele elevation of our position, it then rightly resulted in the very collapse of what we created for ourselves, right? To have and to know. We said, I, I want to be here. And yet that is what brings about our very collapse. It implodes upon itself when we put ourselves in the center. And this is true. Like what do we do about sin, right? Like your suffering, your sorrow, your sure and coming death. It's all because of sin, right? What do we do about it? And we think about that, like the, the worst of it is this. For those out of Christ, this is the best it gets. So the Bible teaches, like if you're a Christian, this is the closest to hell you'll ever be. Like be encouraged, right? Like each moment that passes was the furthest from the hope in Christ that you have in heaven, that you'll ever be. But those who don't trust in Jesus, those not found in Christ, this is the farthest from hell and the closest to heaven in their life they'll ever have if they never trust like, think about it. In all of our lives, we all have heartache and suffering because of sin. 
but those who do not know Jesus as Lord. Like as these moments of pain and sorrow string together to push toward sure and coming death, these are also simultaneously the best moments that someone who is apart from Christ will ever know. Let that sink in. That's the best it ever gets. And it's escaping. Like our situation of putting ourselves in this wrongful position is absolutely desperate. Like it's a beautiful Sunday. It's easy to forget. Do not miss the urgency or the stakes. Like the reality of humanity could not be of more high alarm. Like something has to be done in your life. But this is where despair then turns to hopelessness. Because when we try to alleviate this, what do we do? Like what ends up happening, we, 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 tried, we actually just make it worse. Like sin starts with us inserting ourselves in the place of God, but then it continues as we think that we can be the one to make the situation right. We just keep making it worse and worse. Like in essence, what we do is continue to further attempt to remove God from his rightful place as king. We become judges of goodness and righteousness. Like our approval takes precedence. We assume the position of dictating to God based upon our works. And at best, at best, this is like a Band-Aid to a wound, right? To like a deep wound gushing blood. It's not doing anything. But more likely, I was thinking about this. It's, it's as if we try to take the place of surgery ourselves, right? Like imagine one of our elders, Micah, right? Like imagine you had to go see him for a procedure. He works in the medical field and you call him and, and you get there. He says, come at this time for your appointment. And you get there and he's like, you know what? I'm more busy than I thought I was going to be today, but I went ahead and set everything out for you. And so everything you'll need there, I left. There's a YouTube video up. I think you can figure it out, right? What would happen? Terrifying, right? Our operating would only further damage what was already diseased or torn or broken. We would never conceive of doing such a thing. That's what we do with our sin. Like on our own, our situation is hopeless. We have placed ourselves in a position that we cannot escape. We cannot take back. We cannot heal, nor can we make right. And it's only... It's not only leading to death in this life, but to eternal death in the life that follows. That's what we see here. I draw all that out because it's this that Jesus comes to. This is what he's making clear that he's going to reverse. All of that, a king coming to triumph, to make right, to take back what is his, but to do it in a way that no one could have ever dreamed of, to defeat death, to defeat sin, but to do it in a way to give life to his enemy by allowing his enemy to kill him so that he can secure them in victorious resurrection. In other words, a king on a donkey, not a horse, right? Isn't that beautiful? Because he's a king who didn't come with a sword in his hands, but nails, right? Nails in them. Jesus is coming and he's saying, I am a king, but not the king you think. I am far more good and far better than you could ever hope for. Jesus, he deserves and he should have a triumphal entry. And yet when he does, in his humility, he chooses to make it be riding into our death. Here's the thing though. Like this wasn't even understood until he accomplished all this, right? Because this plan is beyond any known goodness that a person could even dream of. It says why verses below, they didn't understand it. But also it was a plan below the greatness of any known God would ever do, right? Therefore the disciples the crowd, the Pharisees, none of them fully get this. They don't understand that this is what's happening in this entry. Like We'll read verses 16 through 19 as we end our time, and we'll see this. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him, and he had, 
and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, what you're, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Okay, two things as we end our time. First, one more time. See how great and how humble he is? Like, what do the Pharisees say? They say, look, the whole world has gone after him. Like, you can't be a king any higher than to have the whole world go after you. That's the fullest measure of kingship if everyone wants to submit to you. And that's what they're fearing here. Yet this verse is intentionally written by John, right? To push back, push us back to Nicodemus in chapter 3, where really what it says is, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but live eternally. Like, like why? Well, because God sent this son to die so that those who believe will not receive the judgment they deserve. In other words, please see this. Pharisees are wrong. Like the world has not gone after Jesus. But in Jesus, God's gone after the world. That's what's actually happening here. And with this being true, so too then is what the disciples came to understand once Jesus died and rose again. Like if this is true, if it's really Jesus coming after the world, what's true is you can't receive him for what he does, but then reject him for who he is. Like we have to hold John 3.16, right? With Romans 10.9. Like God did so love the world that he sent a son and whoever believes will receive life. You won't perish. But also equally true is what Paul writes for us in Romans 10.9. It makes clear. If you declare with your mouth of what? Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Therefore, real belief is rooted in Jesus reigning in your life as Lord. To receive this life, it's rooted in him reigning in your life is Lord. So see, Jesus, he rides into this week as our triumphant king to bring victory through his death and in his resurrection. But then after Jesus completed his work of salvation, here's what the disciples came to understand and what now through having the whole story we can come to understand, like what we have to understand. There's actually only two responses to Jesus in this text. Like Jesus leaves us no third option. It's either crown him or crucify him. That's what we see. Now when they have it all, they understand that's it. You get one of two options in your life. It's crown Jesus or it's crucify him. You can't have Jesus as savior or healer or peacemaker or brother or friend and not submit to him as king and as Lord. It's crown Jesus or kill Jesus. But Jesus here, he leaves you no choice. Crown me or kill me. One more time though. The beauty of the gospel, right? beauty of the gospel here. Like what we see here, like when he makes this offer because of his love and his grace, these two realities, crown me or kill me, they're really one and the same, right? For those who come to believe. Like amazingly to crown him is to come to know him as crucified for you. Like see his offer, his goodness in his offer. Like it's offered to you. It's true. It's his word. But equally true is to continue to refuse him to deny him, to choose sin instead of him, is to crucify him and to refuse his offer of resurrecting and redeeming you to reign with him, right? To be co-heir with him, to have life with him. Like those are the options. You get one of two, that's it. He leaves no third way. Jesus has come, not because he had to die to be inaugurated as rightful king. Like, like understand this. This wasn't like he had to do this to become king. He's always been king but he came to do this so he could rightly bring us into his kingdom. And your position then in relation to this king 
will result from how you choose to recognize him. If your position in relation to this king is how you choose to recognize him. So see him. See him for who he is and how he has come. See him as king and believe on him as Lord. But understand, this means you must also then rightly surrender and submit your life to him because he came and sacrificed his for yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this story. God, I would love if we could to go back. This is one of these scenes, Jesus, that I wish we could see. God, to get a glimpse of your glory. God, to see. it is so good to be in a room with people that we love and that we care for. God, brothers and sisters that you have brought us to because of what you've done for us, to worship you, to glorify you. But, but if, if I'm honest, Jesus, this passage of people who got to behold you, they got to see you. They got to wonder about you, God. God, we yearn for that. We yearn to walk with you, to talk with you, God. What we do here is not some philosophy, God, to achieve for ourselves some higher place of being, but rather, God, we want to be with you because you are who you say you are. God, there's no way to you if sin remains. You did something about it. Jesus, we don't want to continue to crucify you in your sin, but we want to see, see sin crucified because of you. So God, if there is sin reigning in our lives, may it be killed today. May we repent, may we obey, may we follow, because this is your invitation. God, you are a great king who's gentle. God, you are good, you are majestic, and you are meek. God, may we trust and follow you today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.